0: Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Jessica Geiger, a medical oncologist specializing in head and neck cancers and now Vice Chair of the Department of Hematology and Medical Oncology. Dr. Geiger is here today to talk to us about guidelines for managing salivary tumors. So welcome, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And um, congratulations on the, the new role as Vice Chair. Thank you. So maybe to start, uh, give us a little idea. What's your role here at Cleveland Clinic? Uh,
1: so. Like many of my colleagues, we wear uh, sometimes more than one hat. Um, primarily, I am the program leader for the Head and Neck Medical Oncology Program, uh, which is a very multidisciplinary centric. Uh, program I, just by the nature of treatment and management of head and neck cancers, we rely very heavily on on all of our disciplines with head and neck surgery, radiation oncology, and medical oncology, of course. And then, as you mentioned, I was recently offered a position with uh, as a vice chair for the department, which I am very humbled and grateful. And this is all a new development just over the last week or so. And so I'm excited what opportunities that role can bring and how I can help the department and and Tossig Cancer Institute. and and Cleveland Clinic.
0: Excellent. So today we're going to talk about salivary tumors and some guidelines that you worked on to help uh, put those together. Let's just take a step back. There's a pretty diverse group that might be listening. Salivary gland tumors. What are they? How rare are they? Tell us a little bit about salivary gland tumors.
1: Well, So first, we need to break it down to the different uh, nomenclature and terminology. So when we talk about salivary gland tumors, we're talking about both benign and cancerous tumors or malignant tumors. And so what's important is, uh, thankfully, the majority of salivary gland tumors are benign. But this is not what the guideline is about. Uh, This is not what I see in my practice. Obviously, we see the bad ones, the cancerous ones, the malignant ones. Um, So this guideline is focused on salivary gland malignancies or salivary gland cancers, and they are very rare. So when we think of head and neck cancer in general, a salivary gland cancer uh, accounts for much less than 5% of all the cancers that we see, Um, sometimes even as low as 1% or 2% uh, in a general practice.
0: So pretty rare.
1: They are pretty rare. And then not only as a group are they rare, so when we're talking about you know salivary gland cancers as a group being incredibly rare, then you have to dive in a little bit further because uh, the WHO recognizes actually dozens of different types of salivary gland cancers. Um, and so all of them are exceedingly rare in their own right, even collectively as a group of salivary gland ca- cancers, very rare.
0: So how does one think about... Guidelines for such a rare tumor, so certainly not breast cancer, lung cancer, big trials. Um, how how do you go about even starting?
1: Well, that was I mean that was the goal of of this uh, of this group and this this. You know, formulating this guideline was the fact that up to this point, um, there have been no evidence based or expert consensus based guidelines for salivary gland cancer. Um, So, this was a a first undertaking, a big undertaking. Um, And like other guidelines, you mentioned breast cancer and and other more common cancers, you know, this also involved an extensive literature search trying to find all of the evidence. So, a literature search including um, over 20 years of looking through systematic reviews, randomized control studies, prospective and retrospective comparative studies, um, any kind of clinical trial publications uh, that spanned the year 2000 to 2020 uh, were included. And out of that, about 300 published articles were were felt to address uh, the goals of, of trying to make such a guideline. But it is difficult And I would point out that while we strive to be evidence-based, sometimes we don't have the evidence yet. Um, And so these guidelines are very much evidence-based, but it's also um, rooted in expert panel uh, consensus recommendations as well.
0: And I guess we'll we'll talk a little bit about guidelines themselves, but when we think about guidelines, a, a natural question sometimes is guidelines for who? And so given the rarity of these tumors, are most of these treated in a community setting, are they treated at specialized centers, academic centers, and are are the guidelines to provide guidance to people that might be treating the community, or is this more so that you and your colleagues are sort of doing things the same way?
1: Well, that's the beauty of the guideline is that it, it should be for both. So in an ideal setting, Yes, all of these rare diseases, salivary gland cancers included, would be able to be treated at a large academic or tertiary care center um, where you have, you know, disease-specific experts who, even in rare diseases, see this not uncommonly. Um, But in reality, that's not possible for some patients. And so these guidelines can be extrapolated for use, not just in, you know, head and neck specific oncology or head and neck surgeons who do this day in and day out, but for community practice. Saying surgeons and physicians as well to be able to uh, very plainly and clearly go back to the different recommendations and the different aims and, and clinical questions and make sure that that you know they're kind of going down the right path.
0: And I guess we'll we'll get to the guidelines here in a second. But I guess one one more question about from a patient perspective: who are the patients that you really think should be here at a tertiary center at an academic center? There, there are probably some simpler cases that might be able to be treated more locally. But who's kind of the the group that you'd say, you know, you really got to get that multidisciplinary experience?
1: Well, I think anyone who has the diagnosis of a salivary gland cancer. Um, So not just a benign tumor, but a cancer um, should, if they have the opportunity and the means, at least a consultation with our head and neck surgeons, I think is incredibly valuable. Um, Only because, again, with these different type You know, the different types of salivary gland cancers, they have different histologies. They have different biologic activity. Some are much more aggressive than others. So even in the world of cancer, cancer, as you know, is an umbrella term. Some cancers are much more aggressive than others. And so even though these guidelines are are sort of, um, you know, promoted as, as being salivary gland cancer guidelines, there's little nuances that are very important when it comes to the surgical management of different salivary gland diseases. Um, and so any patient who has been told, you have a salivary gland tumor, it's cancerous, I would strongly advocate and encourage them to seek uh, seek the Cleveland Clinic head and neck surgeons or, or a, a large academic center for, a, at the very least, a, a consultation. Because the surgical plans can be very different. The workup, the management of them can be very, very different.
0: In the guidelines, you cover a variety of categories. You talk about... Diagnosis, preoperative things. You talk about surgery. You talk about radiation and 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 chemotherapy. You talk about all the different categories. Um, tell us a little bit about that. How you sort of categorize things, and 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 what what were the things you're trying to encapsulate? Really, the journey of the patient, right?
1: Right, and so the basis of the guideline is to address and uh, aim to to answer six main clinical questions. And each of those questions, there may be many, many different recommendations that stem from the single question, but you're right, the six questions um, sort of encompass the entire patient journey from initial diagnosis and workup evaluation, you know, making the correct diagnosis, and then with that diagnosis, the correct surgical plan. Um, after surgery, by the way, surgery is the mainstay for all of these. Um, every patient should be evaluated for, for a surgical resection. Um, but after surgery, you know, what is the role of radiation? And that's a specific question. What is the role of systemic therapy or chemotherapy, immunotherapy, all of these other treatments that go all throughout the body that we administer as medical oncologists? That's a, a separate question in and of itself. And then after all of that, cancer treatment, you know, it's still important. How do we follow patients? What's the appropriate follow-up? What imaging should be obtained and at what intervals of imaging so that we can monitor for hopefully never have a recurrence, but that's important. Some of these patients, again, there's many different types of salivary gland cancers. Some are more prone to recur than others, and so following them um, appropriately, that's addressed in one of the clinical questions, and then finally, if this cancer comes back how do we address a recurrent, uh, recurrent disease situation, and that is also um, included in the in the guidelines.
0: So, among the recommendations, we, what are some of the examples of things you, that you think will make the biggest impact? What do you think, as a consensus, as a group, you got together and you said, "This is how we should be doing this." What What do you think are going to make some of the bigger impacts?
1: The way that patients are diagnosed, um, so the specific type of biopsy. Um, And I would point out, too, that the expert panel included in the the development of this guideline um, multidisciplinary. So not just surgeons, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, but also radiologists um, and pathologists as well. And so uh, first and foremost, we have to make the accurate diagnosis. And so the proper um, imaging to uh, stage the cancer, the type of biopsy to to identify which type of salivary gland tumor or malignancy this is. Because if you don't have the right diagnosis going in, then your management can be affected. Um, So that's, I would say, one of the main key points that that should um, be derived from this. Another key point is the extent of surgery. There are a lot of recommendations under that uh, appropriate surgical Uh, clinical question. And it addresses, again, salivary gland cancers. These can occur in the parotid gland, um, in the submandibular glands, but the facial nerve goes right through the parotid gland. So that has a lot of uh, clinical and functional and quality of life. Um, implications if you um, sacrifice, if you have to sacrifice the facial nerve. There are certain cancers where that is more important than others uh, because of the way that it tracks along the nerves or, or the way that it can spread. Um, Again, you know, you don't want to leave any cancer behind, but on the other hand, you don't want to just, you know, scoop out anything and everything that you see because the patient could suffer uh, long-term from a functional standpoint because of that. And so the guidelines address, uh, for example, how to and when to preserve the facial nerve, facial nerve monitoring, and other um, aspects like that.
0: You know, certainly you you develop a practice style. We have like the way we do it at the Cleveland Clinic, and then you Mm -hmm. start working with these other groups. Um, what were the biggest surprises? So what were the things that came up as as variability in practice style that you, you found most surprising?
1: Um, I think management of what to do with the neck. So, um, again, just kind of going back to just the, the basic nitty-gritty of head and neck cancer, um, you know, you have your primary tumor, which in this case for, for the, the talk of today, it's in a salivary gland. But the risk of these cancers is that they may or may not spread to lymph nodes that are located in the neck. And so how do you manage that? Even on imaging, if you don't see any enlarged lymph nodes that don't, you know, lymph nodes don't look suspicious for any kind of cancer, but there could still be cancer in them. And so uh, what is the extent of what we call a a surgical neck dissection or lymph node dissection? How many lymph nodes do you take out? What levels do you remove? Do you remove them or do you include them in the radiation plan post-operative? So there were some nuances from institution to institution about that. But I would I, I would say that largely with these recommendations, um, we were at a majority, if not a complete consensus for the vast majority of these recommendations, which is reassuring because that tells you that there's already um, amongst uh, larger academic institutions, there's already uh, a sort of standard of care that is then exemplified by these guidelines.
0: That's great. I guess as you get people together sort of like-minded and thinking about these things. Um, good opportunity to have people discuss things. Were there, were there research questions that came up through um, through this whole process as you looked at the data that's out there? Um, was this an opportunity where you could come up with further research ideas and collaborations to say, you know, that's uh, who knew we didn't really know this to the level we thought we should?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, and again, going back to an earlier comment that you made about, you know, breast cancer and other cancers having a lot more um, evidence and data. So this literature search that we did, which, I mean, we essentially looked at everything that has ever been published in those two decades in salivary gland cancers. And out of that, there were only two randomized control trials. Uh, so that tells you exactly how rare this is. And again, with a rare disease, it's really difficult to run such large, randomized, you know, practice-changing trials because the number of patients just doesn't exist. You know, we're not seeing hundreds and and thousands of these patients at one institution every year. And so um, it. it Absolutely highlighted the need that we need to focus not just any clinical trials, but large consortium or cooperative group studies, because that's really the only way that we're going to have enough of these patients, see enough of these patients, and put them on uh, trials to have the numbers to be able to get the evidence uh, that we need for uh, for moving the field forward in this. And I think that was very much highlighted. Uh, by the publication of these guidelines.
0: And so I guess kind of a related question. what What are the biggest gaps you think that are that we sort of need to get past in order to improve you know surgeries and lack of you know the risk for recurrence and things like that? what What do we need to be doing to move the field forward?
1: Well, I think, um, and and again, I'm biased because I'm speaking as a medical oncologist. But oh, you know, okay. we we look at we look at all these different um, histologies or different types of salivary gland cancers, and not only do they behave differently, um, but a lot of them have unique uh, genomic alterations as well. And so there, we don't have the results yet, but there was a large, um, actually, one of the the first. Um, randomized control studies, and definitely the largest one that was led uh, by Dr. Adelstein here um, through the RTOG um, cooperative group, where it looked at after higher risk or higher grade, uh, more aggressive salivary gland cancers were removed surgically, um, they were randomized to post-operative radiation alone versus radiation plus chemotherapy. Because right now, um, there is not enough evidence in all salivary gland cancers to recommend for addition chemotherapy. And so that, uh, we don't have the, the results yet from that, but it, it did um, meet accrual a couple of years ago. And so we just, we don't know what the role of systemic therapy is largely. Um, is there a role in the curative setting um, or is it, uh, you know, largely focused on, on the recurrent metastatic, the palliative so-called um, thing? And I think knowing more, getting more information about the molecular aberrations or the molecular level of each of these different diseases I think is going to be key because the truth is um, how we treat adenoid cystic carcinoma, for example, is should be and is going to be very different than salivary duct carcinoma or ascyic cell carcinoma or you know polymorphous adenocarcinoma these I'm just throwing out some of these different histologies just to prove a point of again, you know traditionally we've been treating them all as one disease, but they're not at all. They're very different diseases, and that's um, a major challenge and hurdle
0: and I guess um not necessarily within the guidelines, but since we have your insights as a medical oncologist the role of immunotherapies and genomic-based therapies, how, how has that moved into salivary cancers?
1: Yeah, that's really exciting. I mean, so, um, and you're right, um, I would just like to say that is not part of the guidelines because it is, you know, very, very um, early on and we really have no um, uh, no data, no evidence to support that. But um, there are some uh, histologies, uh, the secretory carcinoma um, that is associated with an NTRK fusion, um, and so I, in my practice, for almost any patient with recurrent metastatic salivary gland cancer, I'm offering molecular testing or next generation sequencing. Um, and I found um, not not you know just talking about NTRK fusions, but I found other point mutations for which we have other targeted agents and other diseases that are already approved. So I think it is worth getting this molecular information on these patients. Um, because you never know what you're going to find. This is a very heterogeneous group of disease, um, and we really have very limited chemotherapy options. By and large, chemotherapy doesn't work that well in this disease as a whole. Um, Maybe some histologies more than others, but ultimately it's going to come down to the molecular signature of these diseases and and how we're going to be able to treat them.
0: Well, going through 20 years worth of uh, data certainly a a tall order. And so it sounds like a, a great effort to get guidelines together. Certainly patients will benefit from that. Their providers will benefit from that. So appreciate your, your efforts and your insight. Thank you very much. To make a direct online referral to our Toxic Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org cancerpatientreferrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org cancer. Thank you for listening, please join us again soon.